Welcome to Conversation 360 podcast in this podcast series called Asia and the West. I'm your host, Susan Bird. On Asia and the West, we showcase people whose life, work, and experience can shed light on what is taking place in and between these two critically important parts of our world. We're especially focused on China, but you'll hear from people with fascinating things to share about other parts of Asia as well. There's over 600 million people that are online in China. Um, at the moment. So if you talk about sheer weight of numbers and the digital literacy of people, um, it's an extraordinary you know, high level of, of, of involvement in the, the new economy, I should say. Those are the words of John White, Managing Director of Heitman, the global real estate investment management firm where he leads the firm's Asia-Pacific Public Real Estate Securities Group and also co-manages the group's global real estate security strategies. John comments on how China has become not only a hotbed of Internet activity for its large population, it has also become a draw, attracting people with talent from the West and elsewhere. There are a number of people that uh, are increasingly migrating to China because that's where some of the great opportunities are in terms of tech and innovation. At the same time, John cites the numbers of wealthy Chinese purchasing real estate in the West and Australia, some with an eye to immigration out of China. If I was like uh, a wealthy Chinese individual and I had the opportunity to send my kids to university in Melbourne, in Australia or into to Canada or whatever, I'd take the opportunity and I'd you know, use that as a beachhead for you know, potential immigration at some point because great health care in these, these countries... Social security, good air, clean water, food security, political security as well. So I think that's something that's an ongoing theme that we need to watch. John is an Australian with experience in the real estate investment marks across Asia and has lived in Hong Kong for nearly a decade. He joined me from Hong Kong for this Conversation 360 episode. We'll talk about his perspective on investment growth in Asia, especially China, and the trends he sees in its capital shift, innovation, and much more. So let's get started. Welcome, John, to Conversation 360 podcast and this particular episode of Asia and the West. Thank you very much, Susan. So when we talk about the conversations taking place in and between Asia and the West, what does that bring to mind for you? What does that mean? Uh, it's, uh, it's a two-sided uh, conversation. Uh, firstly, the way I look at it, uh, Asia has been you know, growing uh, economically and assimilating further into the global community through global trade, um, finance, as well as um, the capital movements. And on the other side, uh, Western organisations of the West broadly has been looking at Asia as an opportunity to grow businesses and to expand into new markets that they hadn't had penetration into earlier. Um, It's been evolving over a number of years and uh, has been, I guess, accelerating over the 2000s and um, has reached probably an area of maturity now or a a next leg of of further development that um, will be interesting to see where it goes. So how has the dialogue shifted over the last decade? Is it that it's less unidimensional, it's less about Westerners investing in Asia? Is it now, uh, you know, more of a a collateral thing or what what, what would you say? uh, Yeah, I'd say it's a two-way flow. I think initially 
Western organisations had come to Asia to, you know, sell that additional can of Coca-Cola or, you know, uh, or provide some sort of cheap manufacturing um, to the West. But I think as we've seen the rise of Asian economies over the last 20 years or so, there's been a, uh, a massive shift of the wealth of the um, of the middle class, we'd call it now, um, across Asia, where internal consumption or the consumption of, of uh, of the residents of these countries is a major market in its own right. So uh, these Western companies that have set up in, in Asia have um, obviously grabbed a, a foothold into these markets, um, but what they've done now is actually reached a point of maturity where they are, in some cases, the more dominant um, provider of services or, or goods in those markets. But at the same time, you know, the manufacturing that um, has gone from the West um, so gone from the east, sorry, to the west, uh, is now more likely to be used for domestic consumption. At least that's that's the hope of the Chinese government right now, right? Well, that's right. Yeah, yeah. the shift from investment to consumption, and, and and that's happening. It's happening very slowly. Uh, there's an element of structural reform that needs to be, you know, uh, undertaken to rebalance that economy. Um, and the jury's still out whether or not they'll be successful. But we can see from economic data coming out of China that, you know, we've got retail sales that are still double-digit growth numbers. You know, we've got uh, wage increases, which are still continuing to, you know, provide wealth to the middle class. Um, and we've seen that manifest itself in terms of their shopping habits, you know, buying, you know, from buying um, commodity goods to buying washing machines and televisions, etc., smartphones, um, and uh, and going up the scale for, for real estate, you know, so for buying houses and buying second homes and then ultimately investing their capital into the West. And that's why I think one of the emerging trends that we've seen is this big capital shift of, um, of money coming from Asia broadly, but specifically in China, to safe haven markets or um, other countries where there are some opportunities to, um, I guess, protect wealth. So let's talk about what's on the mind of many who have an interest in China, and that is the recent slowdown, some call it a downturn, in the Chinese economy. What's happening and how is the impact being felt in the real estate development and construction industries? I know you traveled the entire region, so what impact has this had? I think when you look back at the growth of China over the last 20, even 10 years, economic growth has been accelerating or it was accelerating at, a, at like a breakneck pace. And I don't know, I can't remember exactly what the statistic is, but pretty much like every year there was an economy the size of Ireland or Greece being added or maybe even something larger every year to the Chinese economy. So growing extremely fast. And I guess the base effect of that is increasingly difficult to, you know, to maintain that kind of growth rate. So we're talking about like a 10 to 12% kind of growth rate on something which was 50% of the size it was today, you know, is a completely different number which is required to be achieved in today's terms. So we've seen double-digit GDP growth from China in the uh, in the 90s 
10 in the early 2000s are now decelerating down to a growth rate of around about you know six and a half percent or thereabouts and the projections are for gdp growth to run in the you know the four to five percent uh, level longer term which is just a reflection of the the broadening base of the economy and the the base effect of the size of the overall economy you remember china is now the second largest economy in the world and on ppp terms it's probably the largest um so I think you kind of looked at the, the slowdown of China as a natural extension of the evolution of its growth. And also the composition of the growth is quite different as well. I think, uh, you know, manufacturing, fixed asset investment uh, led growth in the 90s and the 2000s uh, was essential to bring the economy out from an agrarian society into a more manufacturing society. Now we're at this inflection point where China needs to become a services and a consumption-based society. And so it's going through that transition period at the moment. Um, and it's a slow process. And unfortunately, I guess the rest of the world being in the economic funk that it is right now um, has created a bit of a headwind for growth in China. So manufacturing demand from the West uh, exports um, to to the more developed economies around the world have naturally slowed down because the demand has slowed down as well. So the slack needs to be taken out by domestic consumption in China, and that transition is in effect right now. So what about the individuals in China? We know that this new middle class, which truly did not exist before, that those people who have been born... I suppose, in the last 30 years have been living in a place with, as you said, just really quite phenomenal growth. And all of a sudden, without it being as high as it has been, maybe uh, somewhat frustrated. Did you see any of that? Is there an indication that people are um, suddenly discouraged because it, did, it doesn't continue forever? Um, what's your thought about that? Yeah, I, I think... Um I think there's a bit more conservatism, you know, for people within China um, over the last few years. You know, there's been a regime shift. So we've got, you know, last few years we've had a new president, new premier, uh, new way of doing business, new way of, you know, communicating across the Chinese Communist Party, you know, to the rest of the population as well. So there's a bit of that, I think. You know, there is a bit of structural reform happening in terms of the way the company, uh, so the country is is managed. Um, but I'd say, you know, there's the indomitable spirit of people and Chinese in particular. You know, they always continue to find a way, as everyone does, to, you know, to produce wealth and to grow. And I think what we're seeing is is two economies, or maybe even three economies. You know, you've got the traditional kind of rural part of the economy, which made up a large part of GDP. You know, that's a smaller part of the, the pie these days. Manufacturing, as I said earlier, growing at breakneck speed, the demand is not there. So we've got, you know, massive issues with overcapacity in the steel industry and um, in some kind of infrastructure projects as well. Um, but then you've got this, like, massive growth in the services industry. So, you know, the banking, finance sector has been growing quite rapidly um, unfortunately, that's dominated in the large cities. So I think it's very hard to make a generalisation about, you know, whether or not the entire, you know, uh, population is is concerned. I think there's winners and losers. Um, the problem I think that we have in China is that the losers, which I would say is the old manufacturing industries, um, continue to be propped up by 
um, the central government uh, and also some of the banks as well. So if some of the structural reform which is required to basically shut down steel producers and um, you know, other kind of old-style um, um, uh, activities will um, has been deferred for probably a bit too long and needs to happen at some point. At the same time, China needs to open up uh, economically to the rest of the world. So lifting of trade barriers, um, lifting of capital controls, development of a bond market, development of more sophisticated financial instruments, deregulation and... Um, other financial services industry is what's required to kind of take China to the next level and be the powerhouse that it that it uh, that it should be. So we we uh, and I actually didn't ask you specifically about, or maybe I did, but we got onto something else, and that is how has has the real estate business been affected by this slowdown? I know there's many people talk about a bubble in certain parts of China. Yeah. What, what what's your perspective on that? Uh, Again, China is a country of so many different economies and so many different stories. So it's hard to kind of draw a, you know, an average through the whole place. So certainly the major cities have been quite strong in terms of property prices. Um, and there's, there's a limitation of supply. There's also an affordability issue in cities like Beijing and Shenzhen and Shanghai as examples. Um, but that's where the jobs are being created. That's where people are moving to, to um, you know, to embark on careers or you know, basically establish their wealth. So I would say that the property markets have been quite strong overall in those markets, and we continue to see property price growth. But I'd also say that there's a limited amount of supply. And um, but then you go out into the 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 more rural provinces and the smaller cities, so I'd call them the Tier 3 and the Tier 4 cities, where there is no constraints on land supply. There are massive amounts of development, lots of empty buildings, um, and uh, lots of projects still coming out of the ground. And that's where the real problems are, where you've got um, quite a number of um, low-cost as well as low-quality um, buildings that have been built in these third-tier cities um, and not enough buyers for them. And that's where you're seeing price declines. But overall, the, there is a slowdown in property price growth. Um, but again, it's not broad-based. Um, you've got to pick your winners and your losers. It's kind of like if you're investing in the US. You know, there's some cities that are going to be doing better. There's global cities, you know, New York and um, Los Angeles, you know, operate very differently to some of the, the more Rust Belt cities, you know, in the, in the Midwest, as an example. And I think the same thing applies to applies to China. Um, in terms of construction activity, uh, we've seen a bit of a downturn in that. I think that's probably a little bit more of a tightening of financial conditions from 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 the banks and slowdown of economic activity broadly. Um, but then again, I, I'm always surprised by um, the level of construction activity. It's it still is at a pretty high level, but I'd say that speculative element that really existed for a few years after the global financial crisis has largely dissipated. And I wouldn't say the market's in balance. I think it's a slight oversupply if you look across the country, but nothing that is more alarming than what it has been over the last few years. So for for uh, a crucial requirement, it seems to me, I remember you having said that innovation is really crucial in order for China to move successfully away from that earlier export model. And um, I think you had even said when we last talked that as far as digitization is concerned, 
China is well on top of the latest in technology. How does that relate to what's happening innovatively in general? Is China really, um, really picking up its own ability to innovate without simply improving on stuff that was that has come from elsewhere? Are they now? Doing more original thinking of themselves. We know about Alibaba. We know about Tencent, which mm. started out as copycats and really have sort of leapfrogged into places that are highly innovative. Is that something true all over the place, or is that are there just still pockets of that? Where where does innovation sit in all of this? Well, I think the starting point for that is you just need to know that there's over 600 million people that are online in China. Um, at the moment. So if you talk about sheer weight of numbers and the digital literacy of people, um, it's an extraordinary, you know, high level of, of, of involvement in the, the new economy, I should say. Um, and so, you know, we've had examples where, you know, groups like Alibaba and, and other logistics or, you know, retail firms that, that basically leapfrog traditional forms of retailing and are moving straight to drone technology to essentially move goods from the factory or the distribution outlet, you know, to a rural community. So there's no real need to set up some retail activities. Um, certainly Western retailers are looking to set up in China are focusing on the big tier cities. They don't need to kind of go out to the third and fourth tier cities because they can basically distribute their goods online. It's a, like a, a, a normal way of shopping. And I think the West will catch up to the way China operates in terms of retail. Um, certainly there's some examples in countries where, you know, the, the number of people that shop online is, or the percentage of people that shop online is about the same. But when you think about, you know, the cost and time to deliver bricks and mortar retail to the difference between sending out a drone or, you know, by road transport or something like that, China has moved far ahead of the West. So in terms of that kind of um, distribution model um, and technology, I think China's well advanced on that. It's, I think, got the most number of robots in the world too. You know, they're developing their own robot technology, you know, for manufacturing. Obviously, that displaces jobs, um, but Wage levels have increased, and China is increasingly competing against places like Bangladesh and Vietnam for manufacturing and textile goods, and can't compete because wages are too high. So they need to kind of move further down that R and D. And traditionally, they've borrowed technology from other parts of the world, but now they're continuing to develop. And then you go into biotech, and um, there's some exciting stuff that's been done just across the border here, Shenzhen, and a few other areas where um, where where medical research basically is leading the world. Um, so I think that's that's good news in terms of innovation. Um, certainly the number of publications and patents are way up there you know, versus the rest of rest of the world and accelerating. Um, so I'm pretty I'm pretty um, positive on China in terms of its technological development. Um, it's whether or not that technology can be shared with the rest of the world. Uh, and I think one of the issues that Chinese companies do have when they grow or when they're, when they're, they're developing technology is that they don't really have great penetration in other parts of the world at this point. And some people believe that the technology is inferior, and I think in some cases it is, but in some other areas, technology is superior. It sounds as if the – I remember it wasn't that many years ago when we talked about innovation in China, and people said, well, the Chinese really view innovation differently than the West. In the West, it's – something highly disruptive, 
whereas in China it may be more of an evolutionary improvement on what's already there. It's sounding yep. from what you say is it, 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 it is that China has really moved to this more uh, disruptive model and that they're in fact coming up with stuff that nobody else has seen, especially in the biotech area. Did I, did I hear that correctly? Yeah, well, maybe, you know, probably better to, to call it um, an enabler. You know, yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's leapfrogging technology. And I think, you know, when you look at China and Asia broadly, you know, the growth that is experienced, you know, since World War II is an example, right, you know, where we've had a number of feudal and colonial economies, you know, we've had within a generation or two generations um, the development that has occurred in the West over 200 years or so. So you're going to have an accelerated pace of change, and I think people seem to be generally kind of accepting of that. But that accelerated rate of change actually means you'd leapfrog technologies that are redundant. And I, I, I see this, this, this digital economy um, you know, just evolving at just a rapid clip um, in China in particular. So where will the increased innovation come from in China? Will it, it sounds like it's no longer just expats bringing in Western thinking. Is it the young Chinese who are being educated in the West and returning and eventually leading companies? Or is it becoming truly homegrown, despite the fact that the educational system is not one that people feel is based on really critical thinking? Where, where is it going to um, all come from? That's a, that's a good question. Um, I think broadly, you know, a lot of Western firms that have set up in Asia have brought in expats like myself, you know, to run organisations and lead the charge in growing businesses across the region. But now there's a great stock of people that have 20 years experience in Western markets and um, understand how to undertake commerce in other countries that are now leading organisations across the region. Uh, and then there's the homegrown talent that have come up through the ranks as well. So there's a there's a nice blend. I kind of, I don't want to call myself a dinosaur, but increasingly I kind of feel that the edge that that uh, Westerners have had in Asia has dissipated, and, and rightly so, you know, that it should be, it should be like that. And um, so I see innovation and leadership in Asia as a natural extension of, you know, basically building up the skill set by learning the disciplines that have come from um, from the West, and also having an Asian flavour to it, um, which is essentially taking the homegrown cultural values, uh, ways of doing business, conventions of doing business, being respectful for both of them and bringing the best parts of them to be successful. And then you have like the homegrown young people, the innovators that are stepping up that may have been finished off with universities in the West. Um, and we're seeing increasingly here, you know, across Hong Kong and Singapore, that there are a number of people that uh, are increasingly migrating to China because that's where some of the great opportunities are in terms of tech and innovation. Um, again, like Hong Kong and Singapore are very small markets. They have great opportunities themselves. Um, Singapore is a great hub for R&D because it's a tropical climate, great for biotech and drug research and things like that. But because of the size of China and the growth of China, the opportunities will be there. So I like to think of it as a nice kind of cocktail, a blend of you know, older statesmen, Western influence, uh, people with a blend of both cultures and then the homegrown stuff coming through and 
it's fantastic to see that evolution basically in real time, you know, which I have over the last 25 years. Well, I think you're fortunate to have observed that because it's, it's, it's pretty exciting. So it sounds like you're, you're truly optimistic about China's future and that your optimism is based very much on, the, on their ability to really develop new things on their own, successfully move to this new economy, assuming that that is, in fact, a success story. You said that the jury's still out on that. What will the major challenges be to this positive future? Uh, well, I think that the main challenge that China has is the control over its population, essentially. Like, the CCP has been in power for, you know, 50-odd years, and uh, the command and control style of the CCP is increasingly diff difficult in an area where people are digitally connected. Um, China has to deal with the rise of its power economically, but also deal um, with its soft power as well. Um and so, you know, we've seen, you know, conflict in terms of words, at least anyway, and some actions in the South China Sea. Um, so I think that the rise of China um, is an opportunity, but is also seen as a threat by some countries. So, so even within China, you know, there is, even within Asia, sorry, there, um, there's obviously conflict over the South China Sea and trade as well. Um, you know, there's concerns you know, from uh, America that China is um, a threat, and um, so I, I think I think its its natural rise needs to be kind of measured and I guess of low threat to the rest of the world. And I think that China is is going through that evolution at the moment, and. Um, it needs to deal with its citizens in a way which allows them to grow personally, grow wealth, um, have a voice, um, and uh, I guess potentially let go of the command and control, you know, style of, of leadership there, which I doubt will happen. Um, and that I think that's that's the that's the critical that that's a critical risk I think in terms of China's growth. That if the CCP to keep a tight lid on its population, then it will probably crimp its growth um, internally and its uh, power externally um, over the That's long term. That's a delicate balance for uh, sure, right? It is, it is. And I, I wouldn't say that I can, you know, call myself an expert in, in how that operates, but you can see that as people kind of, you know, become more educated become more wealthy, they see more options, they have access to what's available in the West, and there needs to be some kind of way that the, the rise of, of this social awareness um, can be managed. So, um, and I, I, don't, I don't see an easy way for that. How right accurate now. is the Chinese uh, understanding of the West and vice versa? Oh, um, I think... Uh, it depends on who you, you talk to. Obviously, people that have uh, travel and are, are um, aware of the, the you know the global community, you know, are, are fine in that respect. You know, there is a there's a respect that goes both ways. I think those who haven't travelled to the region um, that, and also people within China that hasn't necessarily had exposure outside of China, don't get the full picture as well. So. 
that's a growing, uh, sorry, that's a shrinking number, I should say, because the amount of Chinese that are actually heading overseas on holidays and um, you know connecting more with overseas economies um, is growing all the time, and that awareness is 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 increasing. Um, so I, I think. Um, like it's a work in progress. <laughs> On both sides, I think, yes. So, yeah, that's exactly right. John, are there any other issues that you'd like to mention regarding this East meets West arena, something that you think is important to mention we haven't touched on? Um, I think uh, I think as China, as Asia continues to grow its wealth, you see it exporting capital um, across the world. And I see certainly see this in the real estate space in that um, for what are, a number of reasons why capital flows out of Asia. Um, there's a safe haven aspect, you know, for um, you know, economic uncertainty or political uncertainty that you may want to have some assets in foreign countries. You may want to put some capital into markets where your kids are going to university. So we're seeing it manifest itself in the residential real estate markets um, around the world and, you know, Cities like New York and San Francisco, Vancouver, Sydney, London, doesn't matter what they are. If they've got good infrastructure, good social services, good universities, good institutions and stable governments, capital will flow into those markets. And uh, we've seen that in terms of the rise of property prices and some of unaffordability issues in some cities. But I think that this is a long-term secular theme and... If I was like uh, a wealthy Chinese individual and I had the opportunity to send my kids to university in Melbourne, in Australia, or into to Canada or whatever, I'd take the opportunity and I'd you know use that as a beachhead for you know potential immigration at some point because great healthcare in these these countries, social security, good air, clean water, food security, political security as well. So I think that's something that's an ongoing theme that we need to watch. And I, I don't think that um, the breaks that some governments have been put on foreign investment into various countries is going to be enough to stop this wall of capital that will continue to come into the West from, um, from Asia. Well, broadly. you're right. The statistics say that at least some people are thinking that China's wealthiest and some of its brightest are, in fact, leaving the country and just the terms that you just said. So... This is this is terrific, John. I really thank you. It's been a delight to share your perspectives. If this is the first time you're listening to Asia and the West podcast, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. There are plenty more conversations with fascinating people from where this came. And please rate and review us on iTunes. As you may know, iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings. And the more credit we get, the more people can discover us. And please tell your friends. Word of mouth is a powerful way to spread the word about the Conversation 360 podcast and this Asia and the West series. There's more information on our website, www.conversation360podcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at Conv360Podcast, that's C-O-N-V 360 Podcast, and my personal Twitter is at Susan W. Bird, spelled B-I-R-D. Thanks for listening.